It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Earlier this week, I spoke with retired FBI Special Agent Shannon Monroe for a conversation about her work closing a chilling cold case in Tampa, Florida. Jana was involved in the case from beginning to end and brought justice to the victims of the monstrous serial killer Oba Chandler. Jana had an incredible career in the FBI and was the first female to earn a position in the Bureau's elite behavioral sciences unit. She rose through the ranks of the agency later becoming the special agent in charge at the Bureau's offices in Los Angeles, California, and Phoenix, Arizona. Jana also served as the first assistant director of the FBI's Cyber Crimes Unit. But many of you may be familiar with Jana's behind-the-scenes work in one of the most chilling and best movies of all time, Silence of the Lambs. As the only female at the Bureau's Behavioral Sciences Unit in Quantico, Virginia, Jana helped Jodie Foster prepare for her role as FBI trainee Clarice Starling. Today, Jana joins me with a look back at the film and separates FBI fact from Hollywood fiction. Later, she shares a glimpse of what listeners can find in her memoir, Hearts of Darkness. So when they came to film Silence of the Lambs, I had been in the BAU for approximately um, 18 months. And I just gotten off. It, it's a training program, but um, I referred to it as on-the-job training. So it was a great, extensive training program. But we worked on. There were three of us that were kind of in training at the same time, but um, we worked on cases in addition to our training. So we actually did work a lot. Uh, the training involved going to either the medical examiner or, um, well, for autopsies. Didn't matter whether it was a coroner or a medical examiner, but we would do um, a lot of observations on autopsies. Um, the reason being is we had to understand from the medical perspective um, what it is that they do in an autopsy, right? So that we could ask questions about it after the fact in a specific homicide, um, such as did they do a, a detox sort of a thing. They don't do some of the panels for poisons unless you ask for it ahead of time. Those things were great to know. Um, and that a routine autopsy, they don't do those things. So we um, also took training in different homicide cases, crime scene observation, everything that we ended up doing in profiling, we took specific courses in it in addition to our everyday work being on consultations. So I had, I was done with my training and actually the unit chief, John Douglas got a call from um, the public information officer at at headquarters and said, uh, they're filming um, a movie silence of the lambs and the crew is going to be filming it. They have approval from um, the director to film uh, quite a few segments of it at Quantico. And they're going to be coming, you know, in a couple of weeks. And Miss Foster uh, would like to speak to an agent. And John said, well, that's easy. We have one female agent, so um, she can work with, with Jana. And we were all familiar with the book, Silence of the Lambs, because Thomas Harris, who was the author, he had had quite a bit of access, if you will, to Quantico. And he was, if um, you are familiar with the book or the movie, the characters in there, fortunately, um, are compilations. They're compilations of real serial killers, but usually a compilation of three. 
So there wasn't one Jane Gum. He was a compilation of three. And then I think the most notorious or most famous, if you will, well-known, is Dr. Hannibal Lecter. So he is also a compilation of, of different serial killers. So we get the approval. They come down uh, to do the filming. And that's when I spent time with, uh, with Jodie Foster. And she was extremely professional. I was extremely impressed with her in that, obviously, she, she knew her role. She knew her business. She approached it uh, not only artistically, but as, as business. She came prepared to ask questions. Uh, of course, she knew what the script said. She read everything. Um, so her questions were very poignant. And they'd be something like, she goes, okay, so in this scene, I'm, I'm asking a question like this. Would, would you ask it like that? Or would an agent say something like that? And I'd either say yes or no, we don't use that word. I'll give you an example. Um, and I had to get out of my little law enforcement cocoon uh, to stop using the word female and actually use the word woman. Because in law enforcement, it's, you're always a female, and I'm not sure why, because that's, that's a descriptor, male, female, that you put on your check off the box thing. But everybody was described as a, as a female. And you get out, out of law enforcement, it was like, it's okay to say, yeah, I'm a woman. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a girl. I'm a woman. Um, but you always did that. So they had a part in there that she was a woman agent. And I said, no, nobody would ever say that. It's female agent. So those little nuances we would talk about. Um, and then there was... Um, a scene, well, it's the beginning scene when she is doing the uh, Marine Corps obstacle, the uh, obstacle course. And we're out looking at it with a couple of the uh, other of the crew members. And she said to I think it was like her assistant or someone that was was helping get my double uh, to do that. And I'm thinking, well, you're you're younger than I am. You look like you're in really good shape to me. Why don't you do it? And she goes, it looks pretty hard. Uh, and I said, I bet you you could do it. So to her credit, um, Larry Bonney, an agent who was the one of the head PT physical training instructors, uh, she worked with him and she ended up doing it. So I, I thought that way. I'm going, yay, you go. Yeah. You empowered I think, her. Yeah, but I think anything that, that we can do, it makes it more genuine when you can add you know, the authenticity in there and you can do some of the things yourself or use the words. The only thing that bothered me, she had influence, right? I didn't have any influence. I could make suggestions, but, but she could as, as the star of the movie, but in the book, Thomas Harris had made Clarice Starling. So that was the protagonist had made Clarice Starling a trainee and they followed suit in the movie. And the FBI would never give a trainee a gun and all of that responsibility because they're not an agent yet. So I thought that that one piece, they could have made it like I was an agent. Why don't just make her an agent? But the point was that they wanted to do, they wanted to have the graduation in it. They wanted to have a lot of Quantico as a part of it and and the training. So they kept her um, as a trainee. That was really um, one of the only things um, to me that they didn't focus on and being accurate and genuine. They did a great job of making it very genuine. When you mentioned you know, you that the running in Quantico. I mean, I pictured Jodie Foster running. That's what we all picture. Yeah. I've been there physically and I still just picture the movie. And I have to confess, not a day goes by, including today, when one of my friends or I don't say, hello, Clarice, to each <laughs> other. It just happens at least once a day. So 
Can I ask you, going back to the access you mentioned from the original author, was that typical? Was there a reason, if it wasn't typical, why he was granted so much access to write the original book, The Silence of the Lambs? I'm going to have to say, I don't know. It was not typical, but why he was granted so much, I don't know. But I I know uh, fast forwarding a few years after that, uh, Patricia Cornwell, who uh, also writes crime, fictitious crime, uh, who's sold many books. She also had quite a bit of access. I was, uh, I was her handler, if you will. I mean, nobody could, nobody could come in without being escorted. You're not allowed to go in and just wander around uh, the FBI Academy. So you, you have an escort at all times. So I think Thomas Harris had it um, and Patricia Cornwell had it, but I know when so many of these things were uh, adapted then into movies and became so high profile, the FBI really um, reduced that access because they said, you know, we're, we're not here for tours. We're not here for that, you know, that sort of a thing. So they were, I believe, pretty fortunate to have the access when they did. How long did the immersion process that the shadowing process last between Jody and you? It really, it wasn't as long as you would think. And I think for several reasons, one, she's uh, extremely bright, uh, catches on, had already read the script. So it was more, um, yeah. Okay. So I, she's observing, this is what you do here. Okay. Got it. Um, and like, okay, the script is pretty accurate here. So we don't need to make any modifications. So it really, it didn't take that long. You mentioned the large flaw, <laughs> the flaw in the the timing of things, given the, the trainee versus an actual agent. But um, let's talk about what you felt was very real, being a, a member of the behavioral analysis unit and in such an elite position. And this movie really was all about the psychology of criminals and I guess this trifecta of three monsters. But, you know, this had a big impact on a lot of Americans. So what about it struck you as really accurate, really impactful? What what parts of your career and your work did you see reflected in the movie? Well, one of the things um, that it really it gave me goosebumps uh, was Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Anthony Hopkins, in my opinion, was masterful at that. And I uh, read a lot of books. And I think like most people, when you're reading a book, your character, you develop what your character's you know, look like, you know, it, it describes them, right. But you, in your own, you conjure up in your own mind, what somebody's going to look like or sound like he was perfect. He, he was what I conjure. And when his flat affect, like I experienced so much with the, yeah, no emotion. And remember his blinking was slow and he's, you know, looking at her, hit the whole quid pro quo, the way I took this. So my partners and I, when we were interviewing serial killers or people on death row, what we were there for, is trying to find out if they could help us, if they even had any introspection, why do you do what you do? What's your motivation, right? Why would somebody kill somebody? Um, and, and that heinous, egregious nature. I think what Hannibal Lecter was trying to do, he was trying to find out what it was like to be normal. He asked Clarice very disturbing questions. That's when you look at the silence of the lamb. She didn't want to talk about this. You know, she she was an orphan at this point. She adored her dad. Her dad was killed. She goes to live with this aunt and uncle and they're slaughtering sheep. And so, yeah, you hear the bleeding and whatnot. And then, you know, when you don't hear it and it's silence, you know, they've just been killed. And as a young girl, that, you know, that just was terribly disturbing. And I think when you look at that moment of interaction between the two, he is staring at her, boring holes through her because he wants to see 
what her reactions are. So on that spectrum of normal, um, how is somebody supposed to react or how do they, when they're talking about something painful, uncomfortable, disturbing, because he didn't know that. He didn't know how to, he didn't have that experience. Were there any conversations or interactions that you had in your career that now upon reflection reminded you of, of that attempt at gleaning information from you? Oh, yes. I, I had several of those. And, and they wouldn't be uh, name recognizable people, but um, they didn't use the words, you know, quid pro quo. But one of the guys that I was talking to, um, he gave a little bit of this and, and he said, well, what about you? Where did you grow up? And then I realized, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's we're, I said, well, we're not talking about me. And he goes, why not? Um, so it became a, one of the, it was an awkward situation for me because I hadn't had that happen before. Because again, when we're speaking to somebody on death row or life in prison, we can't, we, the Bureau couldn't offer them anything. We couldn't say, you know, give them a stay of execution or better prison or, you know, better meals. We were appealing to their ego um, as to, help us. We obviously don't know how to do this. We need you to help educate us. We could learn from you. And surprisingly, um, most of them, yeah, that it was like appealing to them to be able to help the poor, ignorant FBI uh, on, on something like that. So yeah, when I had somebody then was doing the same kind of a thing to me, it was disturbing. I had it happen several times. So I think second time around, I was better at it. And I had fictitious things to, to respond with. I wasn't going to tell them anything about myself. In the book, in the movie, what the FBI can do is give Hannibal Lecter a different facility with a view. He wants a window. Right. Um, right. Was that then totally fictional? Were there no. small um, asks that these inmates had other than quid pro quo information that you did deal with ever? Yes. And see those things, like, you know, like most things, it's like, well, we don't do that except, <laughs> you know, we don't do this except. So there are always exceptions and things, at least that's been my experience. So yeah, there, there are times, there were times when it's like, okay, if you're somebody of notoriety or when we're looking for, like, didn't do this for, for Ted Bundy or with Ted Bundy, what he wanted to do, he, we felt there were far more victims and after he had confessed to Bill Hagmeyer, he then wanted to make a deal uh, with the governor of the state of Florida. So for each year, he would give up another victim for another year, another year of stay of execution. Well, number one, uh, you don't make deals with serial killers or people on death row. But that was the way he was trying to negotiate it. And he had more or less said, yes, there are more victims, but I'm not going to disclose that unless now you give me something. So it only worked so long with him. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I had the honor of speaking with Kathy Kleiner Rubin here on this podcast, and she was the Chi Omega sorority sister who survived Ted Bundy's heinous attack and it must be such a large question to be part of law enforcement and faced with a question of does one family's closure, is that worth another family's angst? Is, does one affect the other in the constellation of factors that go into what justice looks like for 
such monstrous behavior as these few people, if the impact on many is positive, but the impact on a few is still heinous, is it worth it? Right. There's a lot of deliberation that goes into that. I mean, you're right. I, I always look at it as if you can convince somebody that at, at your, uh, this is going to be maybe your loss and this is not advantageous to you, but it's going to be helpful to so many others that people can look at it with that perspective. I don't think that's typically the human inclination, um, but if you can look beyond that and what that's really doing, that would be the goal uh, with, with people. Absolutely. But it's it's very weighty. Going back to the shadowing with Jodie Foster and the making of The Silence of the Lambs, were there conversations that um, were held between you or other FBI agents and decision makers, the director, the actors and the like, um, that went a little deeper, that probed into the cases that the original book were based on? Um, anything like that? So I know... Um John Douglas had um, conversations with Jonathan Demi and and some others on that. And yeah, he did go into a little bit deeper. And I think being able to have those conversations, because then you're looking at the artistic people, right, who are directing it and you're going to be looking at through their lens. I, I would like to think that that really helped frame it for them of this the evil and the ugliness that we're talking about. And I think, you know, John was, was very good at being able to go into a little bit more depth as to what somebody might be feeling or not feeling at all. If you're talking about the sociopath part um, or thinking when they did this. So Jane gum, who was the bad guy in this, I think he's often overlooked because literally he's overshadowed by Dr. Hannibal Lecter. But when he, um, he was the one that was, um, abducting the girls to get their skins so he could skin them. And that was um, based on Ed Gein, a real life criminal who did that in Wisconsin. Um, but if you look at what he was actually doing, and I think he did a great job too. It, it was just, he he did not seem as diabolical at the time because of what Hannibal Lecter was doing. Yeah, he appeared, My this is my feeling, he appeared damaged, whereas yeah. Hannibal Lecter appeared diabolical. Yes. Um, Great distinction. So I have to ask this. It's okay if, if you don't want to answer this, but did did Jodie Foster ever bring up the Hinckley case? Was there ever a conversation or an expression of gratitude to the FBI in that she way? Did, she did not to me um, personally, but there, one of my uh, colleagues had worked the Hinckley case um, when he was in the Washington field office before coming to behavioral science, and she'd expressed that to him. You are such an incredible role model, an inspiration. You've had a career that is just astronomically incredible um, for, for anyone, and especially for so many women. And my next question is, that aside, the fact that you, you know, were sort of an inspiration for how Clarice Starling was portrayed, how does that make you feel as so many millions of Americans see that movie as like the pinnacle of the most awesome female FBI agent out there? We know it's you in real life, but what does it feel like to have been the inspiration of that fictional character that so many people revere? You know, that that is so interesting and I'll try to make this short, but they had the, the director went, had a showing of 
Silence of the Lambs the day before it opened just for all of us. I mean, it was a great honor. And I can't believe how I've changed. We were all in our, you know, we're in FBI mode. And so instead of looking at it as it's like, well, how come she's a trainee? We're picking on the few <laughs> things, right? And so uh, we, we liked it, but we're like, okay. So I watched it about 10 years later and I thought, oh, this is pretty good. And now I am totally out. I don't mean I'm out of FBI mode. I am. An, I can be a good audience. I couldn't before. I was like, oh, that would never happen. Oh, that, you know, and I couldn't see. I see why my friends didn't want to go to the movies with me. But now <laughs> I'm a really good audience. And so about three weeks ago, my husband, Dale, and I watched Silence of the Lambs. I thought, you know, I want to see it again. I loved it. <laughs> yes. Was like, yes. And I was looking at it from, and, and I actually would, I'd get scared in a certain part because I wasn't in my analytical mode. I was like, you know, this is what it's like to do this. But let me tell you, I don't know if, if it's accurate what you said, but the biggest joy I get is trying to be a positive role model for others, specifically women. But to be able to do that is, is the greatest thing for me. And if I can just touch somebody, if there's a little bit of an imprint for positiveness, for like encouragement, I think encouragement is a gift. And I, I would love to be able to, to do that and think that. So yeah, that's, that's a dream come true. Well, just know that you, you model, you meaning everyone, they model what they model. And what you model is all of that, all of that encouragement and support and accepting any challenge, surmounting it, and absolutely thriving in these incredible elite positions for the betterment of others and in service to others. So just by existing, my point is, you have absolutely <laughs> nailed that goal. Have no fear. And part of that is in, in a book that you've written so that everyone gets to enjoy your wisdom and benefit from your experience. And it's called Hearts of Darkness. And it was just published October 2023. Can you share about what's in your book? Well, thank you. Yes, um, I I could have written the book years ago, um, did not. And my motivation for writing it uh, recently was there still seems to be a, an interest in, in a lot of these types of, of crimes and the work out there. And I thought, you know, I don't need to have an advisor or consultant. I did this work. And I thought, okay, my goal would be, number one, the victims. Okay, I, for the... The victims and, and their loved ones who grieve their loss, you know, they can't speak up or whatnot. And so to me, I that's who I really dedicated it to. I wanted them to know that there are people working on this and I want everybody to know that, right? And the other was just what we had talked about. I love the idea of being able to help young women and not always just young women, uh, women that are maybe stuck in a mid-career um, and it doesn't have to be work-related in life. I'd love to be able to be that encouragement and I thought with this book, I'd like it to be a little entertaining. Now, there's nothing funny about homicide. I get that. But when I incorporate some of my life's experiences, some of the things I did work on were, were funny. And I'm, I'm kind of laughing at myself. So I like to tell those things. Um, and I was hoping also, I my FBI experience was incredible. I had the great honor of working with some of the best people that I know. I mean, the most honorable people that I know, honorable and ethical. And those things mean a lot to me. Um, so it was, it was my pleasure, my honor to do that. And I thought giving some accurate information about the FBI and a little behind the scenes, look, not, not classified or top secret, but just what it's about could maybe encourage some other younger people to join that organization. 
Jana, thank you so much. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your time today. I absolutely cannot wait to read your book. And this has been such an honor, such a pleasure to learn from you and talk with you today. So thank you so much. Where can people find you? I'm getting a website. Um, but my book is on amazon.com, bookshop.org, and then it's in a lot of other you know, bookstores. And my publicist just told me um, yesterday that it's going to be coming out in paperback. I personally like hardback and it's been, it's on Spotify. So I know a lot of people don't have time to read. And I, I know I do a lot of audio books when I'm, when I'm commuting and whatnot. So you can get it all those places. Thank you, Jana, for joining me on the show. If you haven't done so already, be sure to listen to my previous episode to hear even more about Jana's illustrious career. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.